Hello and welcome to the NPO Media Podcast, a production of the New York City, Staten Island chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. The goal of the podcast is to provide a voice for individuals living with various brain disorders, their families, and clinicians in related fields. My name is Pete Schiffman, and I am your host and president of NAMI Staten Island. My guests for this episode are mother and son Paulette and David Hughes. Paulette is a college professor and a longtime facilitator of the NAMI signature program Family to Family. David holds a bachelor's degree and he is a NAMI Peer Connection Support Group leader, as well as a NAMI Peer-to-Peer Course Instructor. Thank you both for being on the podcast. David, can you share when you first experienced symptoms of a mental health issue? Around the time my father died, hmm, it's hard to explain. I started hearing voices, knowing things weren't quite right. I, I shut down a lot too. I wasn't that talkative. I didn't talk too much. At work, I was very quiet, wouldn't join in conversations. My bosses noticed, hey, I guess you're shy. Then I got hospitalized because I wasn't making any sense. I was starting to work out a lot, like take a lot of vitamins and supplements, but I was up until like three in the morning working out, like overdoing it. And uh, yeah, that was my first hospitalization. And then my second hospitalization, I had a total paranoid attack when I was working and um, hearing voices and everything. And then they had to rush me to the hospital. I started holding my breath, like trying to control everything. I was really freaking out. And um, of course, I looked like I was on something. I wasn't, though, but I looked like it. Then I got on the right medicine, got on the right day program, and um, got better with the help of my family and friends. David, when you first got sick, did you feel as though something was wrong? No. When I first started having symptoms, I thought, no, I didn't think anything was wrong. I, I thought it was just normal to have symptoms. Can you describe the experience of hearing voices? Well, since my father just died, I was hearing his voice. And it was like dreamlike. It wasn't acute or anything, but um, it was enough to like confuse me from thinking straight. Were hearing voices a constant thing? Yeah, I hear, I hear them a lot, yeah. That must have made it very hard to focus or concentrate on things. Yes, very hard to focus. Definitely, yes. So how old were you when you first started experiencing symptoms? 19. Hmm. Unfortunately, not an unusual age for symptoms to first appear. Right. Once you got on the right medications, that helped. Right. Did you always take them as prescribed? No, no. I, I went off and on occasionally because it's like addicting. Like I, I skipped it by accident and I was like, wow, I really feel like I'm medicated. I feel better. And um, so, so I started taking holidays with my medicine and stuff like that. And I went back on eventually, though. Were there problems when you would stop taking the medication? Well, yeah, I wouldn't sleep. I'd be making strange faces and stuff like that. I ask because, as you mentioned, there can be side effects to medication, such as feeling tired, especially shortly after starting new medication. Yeah, exactly, yes. I'd like to say hello to your mom, Paulette. Hello, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> okay. So can you share your experiences from when David first got sick? Oh, yes. Listening, you know, to the way he answered you before my husband died, I think we were both noticing that something wasn't quite right. As David started to tell you, we kept saying, 
you know, he was, he was quiet. He was forgetting things. We just kept thinking something doesn't seem quite right here. But I don't think either one of us suspected that we were going to or anywhere near dealing with an illness. And so much happened in and around the time when my husband was hospitalized and David was showing what I guess we now call early, early symptoms. And it wasn't until after David's dad died that his symptoms did become a lot more acute. And we did hospitalize him at the first time. He was hospitalized four times. The first time we went willingly because he just seemed, as he was saying, very numb, very incoherent. And he started to see a therapist or or a doctor at that time. But David actually went twice into the hospital. He was working at Wendy's at the time. And I was very worried about him. I dropped him off at work. And that was the first really horrific hospitalization that he actually ran home, ran home from Wendy's saying that he was afraid that people were after him and that they were going to cut his face. And Mm. I remember my daughter and I took him in the car and I said, please, let's calm down and put some peaceful music on. I said, David, what, where do you, what do you want us to do to help you? And he actually said that he wanted to go to my parents, to his grandmother and grandfather, who were an amazingly, amazing support and help and loving and caring. But we did have to call Bravo. That's the Brooklyn ambulance. And they brought him out back here to Staten Island and he was hospitalized. You know, now I don't think they diagnosed him properly at that time. But he was under the care of a psychiatrist, and he started another job. And this is the story we've shared at NAMI and at Family to Family. And as David just said to you, he was, oh yes, he was on medication. And I was a very, very active part of NAMI then. I was going to the support meetings every Wednesday. If anything ever happened with David, I would share it at our weekly support meetings that I was worried about this. I wasn't sure about that. And as we know, the the NAMI support was, was just amazing. And I still feel NAMI has been and is still our lifeline. But the story that I feel was so important to both of us is that David was at that time working for Jimmy Max delivering pizza. He was sleeping a lot, but somehow he managed to get himself to work. And I didn't realize until his boss called me and said, I love your son. He could be my brother. I love him. I don't want to fire him. I don't want to let him go. But I want to know uh, what's going on because he's making a lot of mistakes on the job. He's delivering things to the wrong people. The food is cold. We're, We're offering people gift certificates. And last night, he actually broke the window in his car in our parking lot trying to get back into his car. So something about Jimmy Max just touched my heart and I felt I could trust him. And I said, Jimmy, listen, my son is not on drugs, but he needs to be back in the hospital. He needs to be on medication. And right away, Jimmy Mack said, I will help you. Let's make a plan. And 
I called David's therapist. I called David's doctor. Jimmy met my daughter and I in the parking lot at Jimmy Max. And apparently Jimmy must have called the police. And this is our 9-11 story and told the police, he's a good kid. Please, no weapons, no, no violence, but we need to help him get back into the hospital. And I know David and I probably will never forget that night, and, and neither will my daughter, that um, Jimmy just took David under his care or by the arm and said, hey, buddy, we've got to get you help. And, of course, David was still not thinking straight or acting straight. And we did have to sadly get him in handcuffs, put him in the ambulance. And I met him at the hospital. And I remember calling my mom three o'clock in the morning saying, David's okay. We, we have him in the hospital. And believe it or not, I'm, I'm really just rethinking this. The next day was our NAMI luncheon. And I thought, well, the best place for me to be tomorrow is in front of NAMI. And I was co-chairing the luncheons those years with Nancy. Nancy and I were co-chairing it. I'm sure I didn't say anything. I just did my thing and co-chaired the luncheon and went right to the hospital right after, you know, to visit him. That hospitalization was David's turning point. He was probably in the hospital about a month a little bit more than a month, they diagnosed him with schizophrenia. And from that point on, he really has been upward recoup pretty much. I think there was just one incident where he went off his medication, but even that he knew it, he caught himself and called his doctor. So there was no relapse really after that. But I remember, and I think David would share this with you, that he called one of his very good friends, his good buddy, and his good buddy came to visit him in the hospital. And he said, hey, David, come on, we got to get you out of here so we could go back and work out at the gym. And I tell you, Pete and everybody, to have friends and to have people there, to me, is everything. Because David's friend's father had schizophrenia. And mm -hmm. I think that's why David felt he could trust him and call him. And David's right here, and I know he, he will share this story. I was a wreck, and I remember Joe telling me, his, his buddy was Joe. He said, okay, Mrs. Hughes, get your hiking boots on, because we got a long road ahead of us. Wow. And I remember thanking, I, I, to this day, I wish we still saw him, but I said he was our lifeline. And there was a few times when I would say, Joe, please come with me to the hospital. I can't do these visits by myself. And I think David, you know, would share this story with everybody. Thank God he had a friend who reached out to him, who cared about him. And you have talked to him. Come on, we got to get you out of here because we got to go back to the gym and work out. So that hospitalization was about a year right after my husband died. When David first got diagnosed, what was your reaction at the time? I fought this because when the nurse told me David's diagnosis, I remember saying, I don't think so. I said, you know, he just lost his dad. Maybe this is grief. Maybe this is unresolved grief. And whoever it was who spoke to me kind of looked me in the eye 
and said, look, you have two children who both lost their dad. They're both sad. They're both grieving. But your daughter is not having a psychotic break. So please don't, you know, don't be in denial. I don't know how she worded it to me, but I kind of got the message that there was something else going on here besides grieving, which is hard enough for any of us. Again, my NAMI family was right there for me. You know, at that time, as I said, I, I wasn't teaching family to family yet, but I certainly was active. I never missed a support meeting. So I was getting a lot of good support, feedback from everybody, from Linda Wilson to Bell to Nancy, all of my, my good friends who were, have become such a support to me kind of reconfirming what we were being told. So that to me was the beginning of his upward recoup. And we've never had a relapse. And I think we've been very fortunate with the same psychiatrist. He had a couple of psychiatrists early on. He went to the day program at Seaview. One, his psychiatrist from Staten Island relocated we found the psychiatrist that he's still with, and he also had pretty much the same therapist. So I give the advice to any families who are dealing with a mental illness to have the support, the steady support of professional people besides family and friends, besides a strong NAMI network. So I think that's kind of where we started. I don't know if I left anything out, but I had my mom and dad and my mom would say to me, this is my grandson. He will be fine. You know, and, and I remember she came looking, she came in the car with me when we couldn't find David and we didn't know where he was. And we went through a lot of those where he didn't show up at night or he'd be away for a couple of hours and we wouldn't know where he was. And my dad, his grandpa just said, come on, David, let's go punch the punching bag or let's go take a walk on Shore Road. And sometimes I share this, you know, now with our family to families that you don't have to talk about the mental illness in every little detail, but just be there and be positive and be caring and be loving. And that really, really makes all the difference. And I know David has shared this story when we start, when I started to teach family to family, and we've shared this story and we hope and pray that the families that we are in touch with could hear what really has helped us and is still helping us. No doubt about it. So I feel like David's story, you know, our story is a good one, but not without its, its hurts and its, you know, its need real need for ongoing support. And uh, I think that's what's keeping both of us standing up straight is having the tools, knowing what we're dealing with, knowing symptoms. And David will share with you even recently between the pandemic, changing jobs, and the scare of protests. There's been anxiety the past few weeks, but we've reached out. David has, I give him so much credit. He's reached out in every area. He's called his therapist. He's called his psychiatrist in terms of should we adjust the medication? He's called his peers, including Pete and Ken and all of his peer buddies 
and family. And his sister has really been there for him. It does sound like you have a really good handle on what you're dealing with. So, yes, we know what we're dealing with. I think knowledge and education and understanding the illness and being able to say, um, is this a symptom or is it normal nervousness is something that all of us need to be able to know and look at and, and try very hard to deal with. And I think the only way we know that is by learning, by understanding mental illness and having as much support as possible among people who love you, care about you, and people who just understand the illness. And that's where the professionals come in. And that's where other peers and a NAMI support family, you know, we really are a support team for understanding and knowledge and carrying us through the tough times. You brought up the recent stressors David has, and you must be so proud of his resilience in pushing ahead through all of this. So I give David tremendous credit because the last few weeks have been hard for him. And what I just said to him a couple of days ago is, you know, you're working through it. You're, you're admitting, all right, this is hard. I'm, I'm more anxious than I really want to be, but I'm doing it. I'm getting up, I'm getting myself where I want to be, and you're working through it. Not being afraid to call his doctor, call his therapist, talk about readjusting medication if he has to. Obviously, you and David have a tremendous amount of education and insight into mental illness. One of the frequent comments I hear from NAMI families is that my loved one doesn't believe there's anything wrong with them. And therefore, they don't want to go to see a psychiatrist or a therapist or take medication or do anything. Can we discuss that? Pete, I think that what you're describing, I think that is the hardest stage for our families when the person has the illness, has the symptoms, and doesn't recognize it and doesn't know it. I find that that's the most painful for any of our families. I think when David was first ill, I'm sure he didn't know what was going on either. And the only thing, and I don't think I could have ever done this without Jimmy Max. And we hate to tell our families, you have to get your loved one help. You know, and I hate to say call 911 because our 911 experience, you know, was only possible because someone reached out and I say, it was just my daughter and I in the house here with David. And I couldn't bring myself. People from NAMI were saying, you know, your son needs to get back in the hospital. He needs to get back in the hospital. He needs to get on meds. And there was a couple of weeks there when I start, he broke windows in the house and people would say, why didn't you call 911? How did, why didn't you call 911? So we went through about three or four months where I saw violence in the house, breaking things, banging in doors, and I, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And, and I was with my NAMI support team that would say, Paula, you have to get him back in the hospital. So, I, I mean, my heart goes out really to families that are in that situation because I, I, from what I know now, when a loved one is untreated, 
has all these symptoms, but doesn't recognize that he or she needs the help, you know, whether they have to be talked into getting into a hospital, getting into a setting where they can get the help they need or have to call 911, but to set it up in a way that it's calm and and it works. I'm not sure what's out there right now. I just say thank you, God, for Jimmy Max, because he handled it. Our doctor called the hospital and said that David is going to be coming in. Do not discharge him. And it was our psychiatrist who called the hospital and did that for us. So I'm not quite sure. I, you know, I don't want to talk for what's happening now. I mean, if anybody could hear this, whether it's a professional or the hospitals, they need to hear that when a loved one is in the hospital, should not be released until he or she is somewhat stable. David, I think he was in the hospital about a month and a half. And when he came home, at least he was on the right meds. And the discharge plan, I'm almost forgetting that. The discharge plan, we worked with his social worker who said, what's the discharge plan? And the discharge plan was to put him in the partial day program. Right? Although we know everyone is an individual, I think sharing your experiences can really shed light on a very confusing subject for so many people. I just feel let people hear what worked for us and maybe what could and should still be there. Maybe that's a good thing. You know, let them hear this, that we absolutely needed the professional people in the hospital when we got there. And the discharge plan was I was part of that discharge plan where David and I sat with the social worker and the discharge plan was you don't come home until you agree to go to this partial day program. And that they call maybe a step-down unit, but he went every day for about five weeks and I was working. You know, I was still teaching full-time and either he would get himself there or they picked him up. And in between, I would take him to my mom and dad when I had to go still teaching. So you need a tremendous network of family, and the professionals, and the system. So maybe for us, maybe the the professionals need to listen to us today because that worked for us. And that was about 18 years ago. Fortunately, David went back to school and fortunately, he got a job at church soon after he finished the day program where they said, come and work part-time. I didn't know if he was going to go back to Jimmy Max delivering pizza. He was making the decision whether or not to finish college. And fortunately, he decided to take the job up at church. They loved him. They respected him. They didn't have to know. That's another thing that I think people should know. Once you can get a job, the privacy, the confidentiality is so important. Nobody asked any questions. You show up, you do your work, And David never, ever, ever missed a day where his work ethic, even till now, is impeccable. Never took a day off, never called in sick. So he could work at the church and little by little went back and finished his college degree. One course at a time, two courses at a time, and worked 
Well, with the disabilities office at CSI. So I think he took advantage of all the help that's available for people who have a disability, but yet gave it his best shot and did it his way. You know, didn't want extra help, didn't want to be, you know, given a handout, so to speak. Remember, he once said to me, if I can't do this degree on my own, then I don't deserve it. And I remember saying, well, just use it if you need it. If you don't need it, then do it all on your own. But if you need the disabilities office, you need an extension to do a paper or something, then just use it as you need it. And he did. And we celebrated big time that he got his degree and kept his job and won the love and the respect of everybody. And I remember saying, it's your qualities that count. You don't have to be perfect at a particular skill. You know, none of us are perfect at skills, but they see your goodness. They see your sincerity and they see your qualities. And I remember if I'd meet somebody and I, you're David's mom. We love David. So, I mean, I'm so proud of the way he handles the tough stuff. And we've had tough stuff. And uh, losing his dad at 19 was tough and yet keep moving forward. Oh, I hear you loud and clear. So David, the last year has brought with it many challenges and many stressful situations. On top of that, you had a job change. How do you deal with all the feelings of stress that you might have? I have to keep everything in perspective. I have to keep talking myself down, saying, you know, the fact that things are going on doesn't mean they're going on right in front of me doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to get catch COVID that easily. I have to keep reality checking a lot and just forcing myself to get up in the morning. But then when, once the day goes on, the day takes care of itself and I'm, I'm okay. But yeah, it is stressful because, you know, things are very unpredictable right now. At the same time, I try to occupy my time as best as possible, get my mind off things. I take pleasure in waking up around two in the morning and just reading because that's the most quiet time I could think of throughout the whole entire day and night. Whenever the whole world is asleep, supposedly, I could just open my eyes and just kind of be to myself. So I take time and being to myself a little bit and nurturing myself. I know you're a big believer in the benefits of exercise. Can you speak on that? Yeah, I bike ride, run, stuff like that. I'm weightlifting in my garage. I joined the gym again, actually. They opened. So that's been a positive. David, for me, structure helps bind anxiety. What's your feeling about having structure and daily activities. Definitely, structure is very important. I mean, unless you really can't have structure, unless you're that sick, but even if it's going to get into a day program, which is very beneficial, stuff like that is, is very positive. You can't do it on your own. Get help to be in structure. That's what I did. I mean, my doctor said, you know, you should be going to that day program five days a week because the therapist had me going three. He said, no, this is your rehabilitation. You have to take advantage, go every day. How did you get involved in peer support? Well, I was going to the group for a long time before it was official. That's when people were just running it without having to have training in it. And then all of a sudden they said, you have to have training in this. And my therapist said, you're going to that training. When I told them, I said, okay, I took two days off of work, went up to Rye, New York, got training, came back a facilitator. And, and then we uh, started facilitating at the Y. I was doing that for like a good eight years. And then, because now, now the Y is closed because of the COVID, but I was facilitating with Ken's help, with Dean Hogarth's help, other people too um, helped. And then I started doing it by myself because then Ken branched off into his own group. I was doing that for like a good eight years. And uh, 
my therapist really pushed me to go for the training once it became official that you have to get trained for it. And I enjoy it. I mean, it helps me open up. Okay, that sounds really good. Paulette, you had a comment? In my heart, people reached out to David in such a way that I will never, ever, ever forget. And when David is reminding me that when we first heard about the peer group, and I mean, these are names um, that may, maybe these, some of these guys are not around anymore, but I think it's so important that we pay forward, if, for lack of a better way of expressing it. And I think it will help people who might be at a point where they say, no, not me. I don't want to be in a group. No, that's not for me. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. So there's a few things I want to share with people. The gentleman who was running the peer group, Charles Dorigo at that time, actually met David, right? If yeah. I, I'm trying to remember exactly because David also didn't want to go, didn't want to go. And there's a lot of shyness. There's a lot of shyness, I think, with all of us, but with people who are moms or somebody saying, go to the support group. And so many of them want no part of it. Charles actually met him and either met him at the door or met him and invited him in. And I just feel let's all learn from this. Sometimes a one-on-one certainly helps ease that gap and makes the loved one feel comfortable. The other part of that through NAMI and at NAMI meetings, I must have met three or four moms who said, my son has no friends. My son has no friends. All of a sudden, David is friendly with two or three of these guys because the moms somehow, even in a very casual, relaxed way, managed to get them to meet each other. So I think there's a lot of behind the scenes Mm-hmm. That happens when we do it in a way that it works. And I remember with David, we just said, oh, we're going out for pizza. And he bonded, you know, with Jordan and Vincent. And now they formed their own friendship. That happened once after a NAMI meeting. One of the moms came up to me and said, from listening to your story tonight, I think your son and my son would really click. And don't you know, we met, and at that time, David was not, you know, as stable as he is now. And he said, oh, mom, I don't know, blah, 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 blah. So I said, oh, David, just come. If you don't like the guy, so what? We'll leave. They became such good friends for so many years. And I know I've said to a lot of our families, if your loved one is resisting your advice, play it down. Oh, if you don't like this therapist, just go once. Oh, if you don't like this, so what? What's the big deal? Give it a try. Now, another area that I need to share more for pay forward and reaching out, and I'm not sure where we're at with this program right now, but one of the programs that we took advantage of was respite. And a couple of the men who were a little older than David, they came, they met him, they chatted. And David really said to me, these guys are great. I could talk to them. They understand where I'm at. One of them actually stayed when we had to call 911. I can't thank these people enough that he knew how nervous and worried and afraid I was. He slept in my basement when we didn't know where David was. So these are the things that people do for each other. 
when they know that a family is in crisis and we know when people are hurting and afraid. You know, these guys were a little older and one of them was Dwight and we loved Dwight. And he used to meet the guys at Clove Lake and he'd say, let's shoot hoops. But I really know that I want to shoot hoops with some of these guys because I want I want to help them. I want to reach out to them because we're in a, a good place. And David certainly takes advantage of NAMI and the peer group that's still available here. I'm not quite sure about some of these other programs right now, but I really feel in my heart, the more we just keep reaching out, because we know how much it helped us when we were at the receiving end. So if we could reach out to others who need it and what worked for us and what helped us, uh, you know, is what we hope we could still do for other people. So David, as your mom mentioned, getting people involved in support group settings can be difficult sometimes. What would you say are some other things families can do for their loved ones? Just that their support is priceless. The loved one needs the support. They just don't know how to show it. And I know they could turn people off when they're psychotic, but the siblings, the support that they get from the siblings are better than any support from the siblings and from the parents. I would advise the parents and siblings to go to the family to family to know how to support better. They have to understand that when the person's being mean to them, whatever, or not coherent, it's the illness, it's not them. They have to know how to like see past that. I know it's very hard, but you know, the support they get from the siblings would be priceless. A person who is highly symptomatic may say and do things that will push their loved ones away. Yes, exactly. You have to understand it's a psychosis talking. And if it is a danger, you have to call 911. You can't worry about what the loved one's going to... Loved one's not in their right mind. So it's like you have to think for them almost. They can't think for themselves at the time. Very good points. And thank you. David, what are your future plans and goals? That's a good one. I plan to get more stable. I plan to continue recovery more self-discovery, maybe journaling to help me self-discover. Right now, I'm, I'm actually switching back to working for the church again. Okay. Yeah, they, they offered me my old job back, so I took it. I intend to stay there for a while. I might do more peer-to-peer things, like what Rashid does, because I'm, I'm going to go for a course for that. Pretty much just stay working and stay working out. I'm single. I'm not really looking to get involved in a relationship right now. I'm just looking just to stay stable keep doing what I'm doing. Well, the work you're putting in right now to help yourself and to help others makes me truly believe you'll be an incredible peer specialist. Thank you so much. Uh, Pete, I just wanted to mention one thing. I think when you said siblings and the way David expressed himself, and I'm hoping that if they try to put together a sibling support group, because I know that the siblings have their own needs, very much so. And if we could get that off the ground, I know it's in the works right now. It actually was my daughter and I went for the training together for family to family. That bonding that weekend <laughs> was incredible. And she was, she was young. I mean, we brought family to family to Staten Island in '02. And she was just finishing her master's. And I was at that time said I was retiring from full-time teaching. And Linda had asked me 
in terms of teaching. And I said, well, I think that's my gift <laughs> to NAMI. I said, I'm not good at a lot of things or whatever. Advocacy in my way could be to use the teaching tool to work with families. So I realized so much of my daughter at that time where she would say, mom, why do you think I'm fine? And I would say, Chris, you're fine. <laughs> and possibly, I think the moms, we all have to recognize the needs of, as we say, the well sibling. And I think even that's a sensitive issue. So I think the more support and understanding, I think, because you mentioned sibling, I know my son and my daughter have had a good relationship and she's there for him and looks out for him and wants the best for him. But I think the siblings certainly have their own needs. And if they could bond as a sibling group, I think that's wonderful. And we offer that in family to family, where we say, come, if you're a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, and possibly we all have our own needs there. I definitely agree. NAMI Staten Island is seeing more siblings attend the family support group and reaching out for help. And the other thing that you mentioned, if the loved one is resisting, as David mentioned, resisting going to a peer group, and yet that support is priceless, my suggestion, and it worked for David, is can we do something a little bit more social? And I know we talked about it, or just a one-on-one. -on -one. I've said sometimes this to parents I've met. Well, maybe David could just go out to the diner or have a cup of coffee with your son or your daughter. And I know that we mean well, but it doesn't always work. But when it works, I think that's also so important because so many of the moms that I speak to will say, my daughter doesn't have any friends. My daughter's alone. My son's alone. If there's some way we could do it in a more relaxed setting first, I think when they hear peer group, support group, they kind of run away from it. That makes sense. So ease into the situation and develop relationships. If we could do something in a more relaxed atmosphere, go out for pizza and not necessarily call it a peer group at first, just to get people relaxed and comfortable. And I remember this with David. As soon as he met it was Marvin. He said, oh, we, right, oh, what doctor do you see? What meds are you on? And it was like they were buddies. I've seen it work. You know, I've seen it happen. Even at that time, I remember David was lying on the couch and I said, oh, David, let's just go. If you don't like it, we'll leave. And we met the mom and the son. And all of a sudden, the two guys went off by themselves and they were talking their heads off. <laughs> Do you remember that? And then they wound up going bowling together, bike riding together, going to the movies together. And they just bonded. So I would say if we could keep things that way. Right. Very good point. Now, you had mentioned using respite services. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I remember I was invited to a wedding and, you know, I left David with his respite buddy and we couldn't find David. I said, where is he? He knows I'm leaving. He knows I'm going to a wedding. And Roger was his name. Roger called me and said, don't worry about a thing, Mrs. Hughes. I think he's playing basketball at the park. And Roger went and got my son and I could go to a wedding and I felt, thank God David is with Roger, his respite companion. 
So collaborating with professionals and embracing peer support really sounds like a recipe for success in your case. I just know this is what helped us. And if we could still have that kind of networking, that's what got us to where we are right now. And that one-on-one, the relaxed atmosphere, whether it's the moms, the dads, doing all the the behind-the-scenes homework, let us get our loved ones a friend, a one person that they could just be themselves with. I think that's what's needed. And I know because I still talk and still uh, go out and socialize with so many of the moms that I met through NAMI and through family. And I keep hearing that. My daughter doesn't have any friends. You know, she's alone. And if we could somehow get the casual friendship and then, of course, peer. And if David, you know, I know there's supposed to be a peer uh, training coming up that thank you for your support and your confidence in him because this might be the time for him where he can give back in that capacity. But I just want so much for our families, you know, to have what we had, to have that and know that I think that's the steps that work. It's normal to say, I don't want to go to a peer group. I don't want to, you know, so let's do it in a more relaxed way. A cup of coffee at the diner, go out for pizza and then work into a more organized setting. Right. There's all these good steps, Pete. And David and I have been part of NAMI since 1998, I think. My husband, sadly, it's 25 years next month that he died young and we were a young family. I know from my own experiences how hard that can be. We brought family to family to Staten Island in 02. So we're here for the long haul. <laughs> what does yeah. Linton say? You're the longest up and running family to family teacher or whatever expression she uses. <laughs> and I do miss it. I miss it. I can't wait to get back. I know because of the pandemic, we didn't have family to family last spring. And we still have our prayer group and we still meet Zoom the third Saturday morning of every month. And boy, they are faithful. And I could make you laugh because my prayer is that, please, dear Lord, open the Zoom doors so that everybody gets on. (laughs) You're more confident with the technology than I am. I'm always, oh, please let it work. But once we're all on the screen and once we're sharing, I'm so grateful. And they're so grateful that at least right now, you know, that's the best that we can do for each other. We certainly need each other. There's no two ways about it. You can't do this journey alone. And I know that that's NAMI's mantra. You're not alone. I say NAMI has kept us standing up. They really have. Hey, how did you first hear about NAMI Staten Island? I think it was David's psychiatrist here on Staten Island. I guess I was calling her and bothering her and asking her a million questions. And she said, Mrs. Hughes, I can't give you therapy on the phone. And she said, I hear that there's a good group where families reach out and help each other. And it was his doctor. And then I also give tremendous credit because I certainly see a therapist. And I was seeing a therapist then around the time that my husband got sick. 
And I mentioned this to her, and she's the one who said, I think it's family to family. Why don't you look into it? So David's psychiatrist who told me about it, and it was my therapist who confirmed it. And I walked into a meeting, and who was I sitting next to? Belle and Jack Wilson. And these guys, Belle, of course, we, we lost, but that woman was an incredible source of love and strength for us and started Skylight Center. It was Jack Wilson and Linda who sat next to me on a Wednesday night. And when I started telling them about my son, I still remember it, but I walked into that little room and I started to say, hi, my name is Paul Ed, and this is where I'm at with my son. And every head in that room nodded in understanding. And mm -hmm. I never missed, I never missed a support group. I never made a plan on a Wednesday night. And I kept up with those Wednesday nights until I started teaching the family to family. So I can't say enough of how NAMI has saved our lives. I, I say it and I mean it literally that NAMI has really saved our lives. And you've both certainly paid it forward. Yeah. Yes. And now I'll ask if you have some closing comments for our listeners. Just always stay hopeful. Hopeful is the best strategy. And remember, it's never too late to get help. And where there's a will, there's a way. If you will yourself to do good, things will happen. Stay positive. Well, once again, thank you both very much for taking the time out to be on the podcast. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Pete. But now thank you for being such a huge part of NAMI and making all of this possible. You know, keeping us hopeful and positive. You're a big part of this NAMI family. So thank you for all that you're doing for us. Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Thank you for listening to the NPO Media Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by volunteers from NAMI, New York City, Staten Island. If you or someone you know is interested in participating in an NPO Media Podcast, please email us at info at npomedia.org.